So let me, let me, um, let me make this as awkward as I possibly can right out of the gate. And yet not. See, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. All Scripture is written so we can be ready for life. As countercultural as the Scripture may seem, it is true and it's written for our benefit. As countercultural as it may seem in the year 2017 to stand and proclaim a biblical theology of sex, it's still God's word and it's true. As countercultural as it may seem to stand and proclaim a biblical theology of sex within these four walls, as countercultural as it may be to people who sit in these seats, who are already nervously giggling because I've used the word sex three times, it's still God's word. And there's something to be learned from it. Uh, I'm looking around, I don't see any mighty munchkins, but some of you have your kids here. And I know some of you may not have known that the message is going to be about sex. Newsflash! Message is about sex today. Your kids are here. I will keep it as appropriate as I can. I will try to keep it vanilla. I've told people my goal <laughs> with today is to be biblical and interesting without being too interesting. Um, I'm not going to go into the birds and the bees. I, I'm not going to go into any graphic detail. But I will unashamedly and without apology talk about and celebrate the great gift that God has given to us in sex. I know some of you won't be able to make eye contact with me this morning. It's all right. I'm used to it. You know, you might get fidgety, you might get uncomfortable in those moments where you're like, don't cough, don't cough, don't cough. <coughs> oh, great. Everybody thinks I'm struggling with that now. I get it. It's all right. Whatever you need to do to, to make yourself feel more comfortable, make yourself feel as comfortable as you can, I encourage you to do that. However, you need to know that my goal is to make it as awkward as possible. So... I created this for us this morning, a little um, <clears throat> sermon time playlist. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you should all relax because that's as awkward as it's going to get. So let's go. <clears throat> Man, you responded well to that. Praise God. I was worried. <clears throat> Ladies passing out in the aisle. <laughs> um, okay, let's, let's, let, me, let me lay some things out before we launch into this. Some of you that don't know, we've been going through a three-week series on gender, marriage, and sexuality. Um, what has happened in the past few months is the elder team has, has spent many um, meetings walking through a, an idea, a statement, an understanding of the biblical position on these issues and uh, has created um, a, a statement on gender, marriage, sexuality. So that's what we've done the last two weeks and, and today we'll conclude it. So for those of you that are interested, as you leave this morning uh, on the connection station, which is as you go out that door and hang a left like you're heading out the doors, 
There, there is a pile of, of copies of the full statement there for you. Um, we'll certainly make it available in other ways, but that's a way that you can grab that, that this morning. Well, okay, so, so here, here's the crazy part. When we talk about sex and sexuality, here's, here's the problem. This is why we've gotten to the place where we are. For far too long, we've allowed our a culture to shame sex by talking about it too much and in the wrong context, Right? And that, now the problem is the church has actually done the opposite and we've actually shamed sex by ignoring it or by talking about how dirty it is, how filthy it is, how, how gross it is. And then somehow, this cracks me up, sex is so dirty, filthy, gross, save it for the one you love. <laughs> Let's redeem sex. Let's put it back within its biblical context the context that God had intended for it, and let's celebrate it as the gift that it is. So, so as you know, um, we've started kind of here the whole, whole time. Our, uh, our views on these issues flow from our commitment to God and to his word. And so that's where all of this is going to flow from, is coming straight out of, of God's word. I've used four points. It's the same thing this morning. We're going to begin with conviction. What do we believe that the, the Bible teaches about sexuality? Here's, here's one of the, the premises that I want to start on, though, is, is I'm going to walk through a very quick biblical theology of sex, and I, I want to lay it out because, um, and tell you what it is. Because I think too often what we've done is we've approached sex with thou shalt nots. And we, we've missed God's teaching of what it is. We just know what, what it's not and what we're not allowed to do. And so I kind of want to walk through this. And, and foundationally, fundamentally, from the very beginning, what we need to understand is that sex is a beautiful gift from God. It is a beautiful gift gift from God. It is a gift from God that God ordained, designed, and commanded for babies, for procreation, for families. You see that in Genesis chapter 2. God, God has, or sorry, Genesis chapter 1, God had just created man in his image, male and female. He created them in Genesis 1, 28. says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and, and fill the earth and subdue it. So he says, okay, so, so what we want you to do, what God wants us to do is he wants us to procreate. He wants us to engage in the sexual relationship, therefore bringing more children into the world. And, and, and without going into details, just the sheer biology of procreation is unbelievable. Just the, 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 the sheer, I guess I'll call it chemistry, bio, I don't know what you call it, but, but that God would wire us in such a way that, that when man and woman come together sexually, that, that certain cells are formed and merged together, and then blood flows, and then cells swell and duplicate, and then, then when, when a sonogram is taken, there is a child Man. In God's majestic might and power, pregnancy is simply an amazing thing. Science can't explain it. And science thinks they can reproduce it, but they still have to steal from God's wonderful design of cells and all of that in order to make it happen. And so, so when God created sex, this beautiful gift, is, uh, one of the intended purposes was, was that we would procreate, that we would bear children. But, but here we go, sex isn't just for procreation. Okay, get ready. Because God ordained, designed, and commanded sex for celebration, enjoyment, pleasure, 
fun. See, that's where the church has, has missed most often. Now, the, the, the fear seems to be that if we admit to our children that sex is actually fun, then there's no telling what they're going to do, right? I mean, we're going to lose control right away. Or, or we don't want them to know we think it's fun because it's embarrassing, and so we don't talk about it. And so instead, what's happening is our children are getting the worldview of sex from the culture around them. See, see, sex was designed by God. God created sex. He designed it, even down to the the tiniest of nerves and clusters of nerves that are put together in just the right place so that we would enjoy it. That is a miracle and a majestic performance of God himself as he created us in that way. He even created us to have the desires that we have that drive us towards the enjoyment of sex with our spouse. It's not a mistake. Um, this is one message you should get nervous when I step away from my notes. Um, <laughs> men, I'm gonna be careful because there is a certain amount of guilt and appropriate guilt that some of us men should carry because of the inappropriate nature of the way we have interacted with sex, whether it be pornography or lustful thinking. But, but, but let, me, let me say this outright. Men, for far too long... We have carried a false guilt because we carry a more palpable desire to have sex with our wife. And it carries with it a guilt because we must just be pigs. Um, I'm speaking from among the pool of fish to the other fish. Guys, we can't let that, that, that be. We can't let that worldview of the culture be poured into us. I'm not saying chase your wife 24-7, but what I'm saying is that desire has been placed there by God himself. It is a good and wholesome desire. It's a good and wholesome desire. We're actually going to see uh, on Proverbs chapter 5. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. See, the enjoyment, the pleasure, the fun in the sexual relationship between a husband and his wife takes these these three words I'll look at. It says to rejoice in the wife of your youth. That means to take pleasure in. There's no other way to look at that word. It means to enjoy your wife. It means to, 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 okay, here you go, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. That means be filled full, overwhelmed with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. It's to be drunken, to be weak-kneed, to be staggered, and here it is, to be led astray. Think about that for a moment. Your love and passion for your wife and the body that God has given to her should lead you into just not being able to rejoice in any other, only her. So let me, let me, let me, okay, I'm just going to shoot straight. So if you read these verses, these verses are not a picture of the lights off monotonous, well, we have to so we can have children. This is the picture of enjoyment at its purest level. Enjoying the wife of your youth. You think that's uncomfortable? Take your Bibles and turn to Song of Solomon, chapter 7. 
I made a comment a number of months ago about how I prayed God would never have me preach Revelation and Song of Solomon. Revelation was a few months ago, and here we find ourselves in Song of Solomon. So I am not saying anything else ever again. <clears throat> a lot of people look at Song of Solomon, they have no idea what to do with this book. You read it, and, and, and the problem is it is so implicit and explicit when it comes to a relationship between a man and his lover that, that when we read it, it makes us uncomfortable. It's like, it certainly can't mean that. Why would that be in the Bible? I can't understand that. I can't, and so what has happened throughout history is people have tried to turn it into this allegory to talk about how, how it's Jesus and the church. The problem is the language is so incredibly explicit sexually that it is not talking about Jesus and his church. This is a picture of holy and righteous and enjoyable relationship between a man and his wife. Song of Solomon chapter 7 I'll start reading in verse 1. This is what, it, many Bibles kind of set off different paragraphs through Song of Solomon with, with, is it him, is it her talking? My Bible says he is talking and then she is talking. So here he is talking and he says this. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. All right, we'll stop right there. Hey! The picture is this, when a sandal is being worn, it sets off the beauty of her feet. This is how in love and ravished this man is with this woman. Your toes are adorable. But man, that one's safe. I will point at some other ones in this passage you probably shouldn't go with. How noble are your feet and sandals, how beautiful, sorry, how beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Guys, I'd lay off the heap of wheat comment. <laughs> you're going <laughs> to need a little context there. I don't think that's where you want to go. It's not going to end the way you see it ending if you go with the heap of wheat. Verse 3, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon which looks towards Damascus. Again, fellas. <laughs> what, what that's talking about is that the tower of Damascus stood so profoundly in its landscape it, it, it actually was a, it's almost like, um, oh, what, what, you know, you, you, you wear necklaces or earrings to set up. It's, the idea is that the, the tower stood and you took notice of everything else. It made everything else seem flatter or bigger or, or more beautiful. And, and then what he's saying is, as I look at your nose, it sets off the beauty of your face. Verse 5, your head crowns you like caramel. Your flowing locks are like purple. That's, that's the... The beautiful color. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful, how pleasant you are, O oh loved one, with all of your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree. Your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of the vine, the scent of your breath like apples, your mouth like the best wine. And she responds, that wine you speak of, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over his lips and his teeth. 
I do not believe I need to comment on his intent for the 6 through 8. It's very clear. He is looking at his wife and he loves what he sees. He's enamored with her. Why don't our kids see this passion and this desire happening between mom and dad at home? See it as a beautiful and enjoyable thing that should happen within the boundaries of marriage? Because oftentimes we don't even present it like that. Instead, with our children, we present it as the act that shall never be spoken of that we certainly had no part in, you just miraculously appeared. We, we can't talk about this. We can't hint at it. I, and I can't believe that Pastor Frank is talking about it in church. Perhaps that's why we have so many issues, struggles, problems, and difficulties in our culture today in the area of sex. It's because... It, Parents who know and love Jesus Christ are not the ones who are framing the conversation. Instead, our modern-day philosophers are. And the problem is many of our modern-day philosophers scoff when they hear the name of Jesus. God ordained, designed, and commanded sex for procreation. God ordained, designed, and commanded sex for enjoyment And God ordained, designed, and commanded sex for intimacy, relationship, and display of commitment. This is one of the most interesting verses in all of Scripture. You've got the definition of marriage in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, coming from Moses, and then he finishes it with this head-scratcher, and he says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Stop there, it's all good, but then it continues. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Thank you? What is that communicating? Naked and unashamed. Intimate, transparent. Hiding nothing. Withholding nothing. I give you everything I am, and I accept you unconditionally without any shame. Standing before your spouse, it's loving their body, their soul, and their mind. And it's, it's, it's reminding them that you are ferociously committed to them. It's saying that no matter what may happen, I am all in, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere. One of the reasons that, that sex happens within the relation, marriage relationship, one of the reasons God ordained sex is, is to communicate this, this to our spouse. I trust you with every part of my being. I am hiding nothing. But it also communicates to your spouse, I accept every part of you as you are. So, husbands and wives, let me ask you this question. What is it that you need to repent of in that area in this moment? What is it that you need to have a conversation with your spouse and remind them that you're not going anywhere? What is it that you've held back 
and, and, and not been completely open and transparent and honest about with your spouse. See, it's in that transparency and intimacy that your relationship becomes what God intended it to be. It's the gift of sex from God himself. It's for childbearing, it's for enjoyment, it's for commitment. It's to be celebrated, but it has its boundaries. So, so let me, let me um, throw this in front of you. This is the statement on sexuality, the first part. We believe that God clearly teaches that sexual intimacy must occur only within this biblical covenant of marriage, which we talked about last week, between a man and a woman. The, the gift of sex remains beautiful only within the clear boundaries that God has established, within the biblical covenant of marriage, within the biblical covenant of marriage, one man, one woman, permanently bound together by God. Within this relationship, where the relationship is greater than the desires that I have, the relationship is far more important than, than the, the, oh, I wish, I want to know it's bigger than you. It's much greater than that. It's a covenant relationship, where, where, and within that relationship, sex is to be enjoyed, hear this, Without restriction. Hebrews chapter 13, 4 says the marriage bed is undefiled. It is an integral and important aspect of the marriage relationship. Anything that happens outside of that covenant, outside of the, 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 the relationship of marriage, is, is no longer bound by covenant. Now it's become consumer-based. Anything that happens outside of the boundaries that God has laid out, what it becomes is what I want, when I want it, and how I want it. And so what you see is, is in the American culture in the last 30 years, the, the incredible explosion uh, statistically of the number of people who live together without ever engaging in a, a commitment to each other, a covenant with each other to get married. I want to live with you forever without committing to spending forever with you. Does that make any sense? It's actually a mark of immaturity. It's a, it's a mark of narcissism. The mark of egotism. I want to get what I want. And cut and dry. Forget all that stuff. Cut and dry. God's words calls it what it is. It's sin, period. So, so what we continue to say in the statement is this. Therefore, we believe that any form of sexual behavior. So, so it's important you catch that. Any form of sexual behavior outside of the context of a monogamous one man and one woman marriage relationship is sinful in the eyes of God. So, so it's far bigger than just living together and not being married. It's any sexual behavior outside of the context of marriage. That means adultery, premarital sex, same-sex relationships, pornography, self-gratification, because all of those things violate the definition of the covenant that you're supposed to be in that restricts your sexual behavior. And all of it damages your soul. Not, not because God's some prudish killjoy that doesn't want you to have fun. I think we proved that already. God says within this, this covenant relationship, man, have fun. Enjoy it. But outside of that boundary, there is no enjoyment to be had because there's no real freedom to be had outside of that boundary. We, we, we've thought that there's freedom and we've run towards it. And God says, stop, I'm telling you, these boundaries are the best for you. Because when you run out to that, what you're doing is committing to an emptiness of your soul. You're trying to fill a part in your soul with something that was never meant to fill that part of your soul. 
That's, well, I don't want to, I don't have enough time to go on a tangent. So let me, let me do this. God's plan for sex is so much better and bigger than what culture around us is selling. So, so take your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church, and, and what he's dealing with here is in chapter 6 and in chapter 7 are two different ways of thinking of Greek philosophy. And the first one is this, it basically, and I won't use technical terms, I'll just kind of blow it down. It says basically, your body is just flesh, and so you can jump in and have as much sex as you want. It's, it's just an activity. It's just like going fishing. Just like, it's just like going hunting. It's, it's just like doing needlework. It's, it's no big deal. It's just something. You enjoy it? Yeah, go ahead. It's just like eating food. And that's really the illustration that Paul goes with. So in 1 Corinthians 6, look at verse, uh, verse 12. He, he uses it, and I love this, this phraseology that he uses. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. So I might be allowed to do it, but it may not be best for me. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. I mean, I could do that, but I'm not going to allow that to control me, is what he says. Verse 13, food, it's meant for the stomach. The stomach, meant for food. So basically, he's re-quoting the Greek philosophy of eat whatever you want, it's just the stomach. Eat whatever you want, it's just food, it doesn't matter. And he says this, God will destroy both the stomach and food. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? No, never. Wait, do do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. But Paul says, says you, you're missing the point. It's not just this thing that you do. It's just not just hobby. It's not just, oh, it feels good. I'm going to do it. It doesn't matter. He says, no, it's far deeper than that. You, 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 you don't understand the very concept of sex. The way sex works is this. When our two individuals, when they come together, they're one and they remain one, not just physically speaking, but on a soul level. It's like salt. If I take sodium and I take chloride and I throw it on your table, well, you, you might have an interesting dinner, that's for sure. I'm going to put sodium and chloride on your table, but individually, okay, whatever. But when you put them together on a chemical level, when they bond, they become something completely different. They become salt. That's what happens when, when sex occurs between two people. It binds their souls together. And to think that you can just engage in it and then walk away means you don't understand sex. And so he, he tears apart that Greek philosophy of I can do whatever I want, the, you know, the body, the stomach's made for food, food for the stomach, I can do whatever I want. He says, no, no, it's deeper than that, it's a much deeper level than that, so don't just throw it away, don't treat it so, so insignificantly, be much more significant about it. And then you get to 1 Corinthians 7, which is one of the verses that is most ripped out of context in all of Scripture. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, it says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Okay. I went to Bible college. And I seriously, literally, 
not exaggerating, at least twice every year, somebody would come to Bible College campus, come into chapel, and they would preach 1 Corinthians 7, 1 and say, see, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Men, keep your hands to yourself. Well, I mean, that's a great biblical principle. That's just, that's not what this verse says. See what Paul's doing here. He says, now let's talk about the things you wrote to me. Let's talk about the things. So Paul received a letter from the Corinthian church asking a number of questions. And one of the questions was, was this opposite Greek philosophy than the one in 1 Corinthians 6 where it says, husband and wife, yeah, don't touch each other. No sex for you. It's not to happen. You should, you should stay away from it because sex is dirty. It's only for procreation. So, so nope. And Paul says, let me write to you about that. Verse 2, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman should have her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Because the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does likewise. The body doesn't have authority over his own body. I did that messed up, didn't I? That's okay, but the wife does. (laughs) It didn't sound right, but I can't figure out where it was, so just, amen, amen, let's move on. Verse 5, don't deprive one another. Do not deprive one another. So so Paul's response to this whole, which I would have loved one of those preachers in chapel to go to, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And then Paul continues on and says, don't deprive one another. That would have changed Bible college forever. I mean, a disaster. (laughs) So what's Paul saying? Saying, no, within the marriage relationship, this is right, this is good, and you should not deprive one another. Now, there is a reason to deprive one another. He continues on. He says, unless uh, you, by agreement for a limited time you devote yourselves to prayer, then come back together again so Satan can't, can't uh, get into the middle of your marriage. So, so let me make sure I lay this out before somebody goes and misquotes this, okay? So he says, unless by agreement. That means husband and wife agree. It's not one of them like, hey, guess what? We're not having sex this week because we're going to pray. No. By agreement... For a limited time, that means there's a definitive period of time for prayer. There's something going on in your life where you simply need to dedicate the time and the passion that you would invest in your spouse and sex to prayer, then you should take that. And then by all means, make sure there is a time where you come back together again so that Satan doesn't wiggle his way into the middle of your marriage relationship. If we see sex for what it is, a beautiful gift from God, beautiful within the the boundaries of marriage, a gift that is meant for procreation, for enjoyment, and communication of commitment, then we get to celebrate it. We get to redeem it from what the culture has tried to turn it into. Okay. Oh, baby. Concerns. I don't have any. Let's move on. (laughs) Um, Yeah. All right, so I'm going to deal with one. I'm going to get rid of the rest. I'm going to deal with one. Uh, if you have more, come on Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. We've had a great time together. Come Wednesday night, 7 o'clock to the conference room. Um, walk on in, and we'll, we'll sit down, and then we just start throwing questions at each other. It actually has been, a, it's been a, a very enjoyable, but, but I only have time to deal with this one. I think this is the most important one within the context of the whole series. Um, I really haven't dealt with it this morning, but I have in the last two weeks. So I want to deal with this. And the concern is this. So, so Frank, what you're saying, by defining sex that way, what you're saying then is that if I have and struggle with same-sex attraction, then I'm a sinner. All right, so, so, so my first response to, this, to that, 
that statement. So, so by wrestling with same-sex attraction, you're calling me a sinner, is this. No. Being a human makes you a sinner. Okay, so, so let's, not, let's, let's be careful. We, we're all broken in this. And, and then I'll also say this. There are people, and, you, and, and, and well, let me start with this way. You can know and love Jesus and still wrestle with same-sex attraction. There are people that you know who know and love Jesus wrestle with same-sex attraction. What, what, the, the issue of sin isn't what the desires are or what the wrestling is or what the temptation is. Where, where, where it goes wrong, where the sin comes in, is what you do with those desires. So, so listen, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I know this may appall you. This may freak you out to know that I am your pastor, but let's, let's, let's cut to the trace. There are days I feel like calling people some terrible names. There are days that I actually want to run some people off the road. I can tell you exactly where, and it wouldn't surprise you. It's on 140. You get right past it where that merge is right there. Yeah, you know. See, you all know. <laughs> That's not the sin. It may mean I need counseling, but it's not the sin. <laughs> the sin is what I do with the desire. Um, it's funny to me that if I was having this conversation with somebody who's struggling, struggling with, with same-sex attraction, I think the kickback would be, oh, you're calling me a sinner. Because I, but, but when I'm dealing with the church as a whole, it really is. No, listen, they, they, they can struggle with that. It's, it's, it's a struggle. Um, let, let, me, let me, oh, time-wise, there's three options. And actually, I really want to get to this. So I'm going to do this. Um, there's three options that occur within someone who has the same-sex attraction struggle. Um, what they're going to do as they struggle with that. One of the options is to, to have a relationship with somebody who's in the same sex. I'm, I'm not saying these are right or wrong. I'm just saying these are the three options. This is what's going to happen. They, they can have the relationship with another person of the same sex. And, and, and let me be clear, as I was last week, this is, this is what God says is sin. Okay, we defined that clearly last week. So, so I hate just throwing that out there on both sides. Oh, you were weak on it. Oh, you just called it sin. There's a whole context that came in last week. Go online, listen to it. Come and ask me questions. I'd be happy to give you context. I just don't have time right now, so I apologize. Okay? So the first option is they can engage in a relationship with a person of the same sex. They can also go ahead and engage in a, in a heterosexual relationship. So there can be somewhat of a denial of their physical sexuality as they invest in somebody else in a social sexuality. The idea is is loving that person, learning to love that person, learning to to care for that person, learning to serve that person, and and that person knows and loves them. And many, many times what happens in that, that process is then the physical sexuality comes at a later time. Um, I'll deal with this again at the end, but let me throw some. But that may not happen in this lifetime. There are many that I know and love who wrestle with same-sex attraction and, and, and there's just no heterosexual attraction for them. So what are they going to do? Well, again, they, they can serve in social sexuality with someone of the opposite sex. They can engage in a relationship with somebody of the other sex. Oh, the same sex, sorry. I'm getting my words all bumbled because I'm trying to get to this next point. Not the greatest philosophy of preaching ever, that's all right. The third option is this. They can remain single. However, if we really believe that's an option, then we had better change some of our vernacular in the church. 
Um, I was a singles pastor for 10 years. Some of the dumbest things I ever heard were said to our singles. Man, someday you'll get married, you'll be a complete believer. (laughs) Careful. God has someone for you. Oh, did he tell you that? I don't see that anywhere. Hmm. Oh, just be patient and wait. God will bring the right one along. What you're doing is you're communicating to those who are single that they're looking down the road for completeness. My friends, singleness does not make someone an incomplete believer. They're not lacking God's blessing. Because if they were, we would have a hard time explaining Paul or Jesus. So 1 Corinthians 7, and man, one of these days I'm going to preach 1 Corinthians 7 because it is a passion of my soul. When you look at 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is talking to the church at Corinth, which is filled with people who used to be slaves. And they're trying to figure out, okay, so I am a slave, I used to be a slave, or I own slaves. Those are pretty much the three categories in Corinth. And he's talking to them, and as he's talking, I know, I know, it's an illustration in singleness of 1 Corinthians 7. He says, I know, you're wrestling with this, and I know, well, let me, let me, let me point this out to you. Maybe I'll paint a picture. There are some of you, you thought sex was awkward, wait till this part. There are some of you who were circumcised, and some of you who are uncircumcised. And the problem was, the Jews who were circumcised were undergoing procedures to reverse the circumcision. Why? (laughs) For a couple of reasons why. Because the business deals were done in the Roman gymnasiums where men were nude. And as the Greeks saw the Jews, they thought, those morons. Why would I do business with them? They're so foolish. I mean, that. And Paul says to the Corinthians, that's nothing but a social expectation. The Greeks think that the Jews are foolish for undergoing circumcision, and the Jews think the Greeks are just wise because they haven't. And so what you're doing is you're creating this this false level of grading among people, and and so now you're so worried about it. And he says, hey, 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 singles, forget about the social expectations. You're a slave or you used to be a slave? Let's talk about you being in slavery. That's great. Care not for it, is what he says. He says, you're a slave? Who cares? You've been called free in Christ. So stop saying, I have a limitation because I'm a slave. No, you don't. All you have is a perceived limitation. Shed the perceived limitation and serve Christ where you are. Singles. Forget about these social expectations that are are nothing. Forget about the perceived limitations of your singleness. Where are you? Serve Christ there. Hmm. Um, It's funny, he also says to the slaves, listen, if you have opportunity to be free, take it. You don't have to, but, but if, you, if that presents itself, take it. And so, so that, I would carry that through to the singles and say, listen, it doesn't say you can't change your status. It just says you don't have to. Serve Christ where you are because you are complete in him without changing your marital status. Yeah, whatever. Courage. 
courage. Um, so what are we going to need courage for? I am flying. I am sorry. Um, my kids are thankful I'm flying, though. <laughs> I'm not spending time on the uncomfortable parts. Um, so to fight the cultural norm of taking our sexual desires outside the marriage relationship. So here's the courage that you need. You ready? Here's the courage you need. Run. Just run. It is everywhere. It's forced upon us <laughs> everywhere. When sex is used to sell shampoo, you know you have a problem. But that's normal. Run. Flee. Escape. Men, and, and, and it is, men, they, they are going at men between the ages of 20 and 45 in their advertising and marketing schemes. And everything is sex because they're not dumb. Men, shield yourselves. Do whatever you need to. No program is going to save your soul. Is it clear? I don't, I don't care if it's Covenant Eyes or it's Triple uh, X Church or whatever it might be. No program is going to save your soul. What's going to save your soul is a willingness to lean into Jesus in those times where you're tempted to not. Run from it. It's everywhere. When that thing pops up on your TV that you don't want to see, change a channel or look away. See, the problem is, is that's normal preaching in the churches because we're so focused on the physical sexuality that exists around us. However, just as damaging to our souls is the social sexuality that exists today. And the targets for that are the women. And I do change the way I speak when I speak directly to women to make application. But I will not water this down, ladies. If you are watching Bachelor and Bachelorette, I fear for your soul. Because that is as damaging, if not more, than your husband watching hardcore porn. You may not be looking at body parts, but you're looking at somebody's private life. You're imagining what it could be like. And then you wonder why your husband can't meet your needs. It's because you're filling your head with the garbage of a false sexuality, a cartoon sexuality, just in case you were trying to keep track. Um, Real life, you don't get a rose when somebody chooses you. You'd better get a lot more than that. Probably the greatest thing he can give you is turning his back on the 12 other women who are pursuing him because he holds you in high esteem. So our our language to the men to flee youthful lusts is the same language to our women. Flee youthful lusts. Seems appropriate. I go to compassion now. Um, between the, the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s, and now the, the uh, I'll just call it a sexual wasteland of today, um, there already are, and there will continue to be, countless left wounded and bleeding. And if 
we are called on by God to be his people, to be his church, then we need to know that there are going to be refugees of the sexual revolution and wasteland that need grace. So what does that look like? Look at John chapter 8 with me as we close. John chapter 8, uh, we're, we're told of an interaction between Jesus and a number of people, and it starts, I'll start in verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and they placed her in the midst of the people, all the people who had gathered there, and they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, when the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women, what do you say? And this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So Jesus bent down and wrote in the ground with his finger. I have no clue what he wrote. Obviously, they did. Because upon finishing writing, he stood up and he said this. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Then... He bent down and wrote on the ground again. And as he wrote the second time, one by one, starting with the oldest, they left. Why? There's a lot of theories out there. My personal theory um, is that as Jesus, because you have to understand, they brought the woman who was caught in adultery, which means they also caught the man, but he was nowhere to be found. Chances are good the man stood in the crowd with him. I believe the first one, Jesus went down, he wrote the name of the man who was with her. I believe the second time he went down, he started to write the names of the women that they had been committing adultery with. Now, I can get to heaven, Jesus would be like, no. I'm good with that, okay? It's going to be honest, so don't die for that one. Uh, But they all left. Jesus says in verse 10, woman, Where'd they go? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Now go, sin no more. She was not innocent. She was guilty of adultery. As charged... And yet Jesus' response to her was, I don't judge you, grace. Now go and sin no more, holiness. Notice what comes first. A collision with Jesus and his grace. Don't stand and yell at someone and tell them to try to figure it out. Introduce them to the God of all comfort and grace. Jesus always proclaimed holiness. He always proclaimed righteousness, but he always gathered with the outcasts. Did you ever notice that? The people who are the exact opposite of holy and righteous. Why? Because it's not the healthy who need the doctor. The sick. So there are people within this room who struggle. They struggle with pornography. They struggle with lustful thinking. 
that they struggle with same-sex desires. Just, just to throw a few in there. Let me, let me tell all of you, every single one of you, particularly those of you that are struggling, there is freedom in Jesus. Run to him. But, but Frank, I, I'm a believer. Why do you keep telling me to run to Jesus? I ran to him. Yeah, it doesn't end. And Paul, Paul was so clear. Every time Paul preached, he says, I preach Christ and him crucified. Christ and him crucified. Christ and him crucified. Why? He's not a very creative preacher. No! Because that message, which is the gospel, is the message of grace, which is the power behind living holy lives. And Colossians tells us, as you receive Jesus Christ, so walk ye in him. How did you receive Jesus? With arrogance and piety. I got this figured out. If you did, I would challenge the fact that you have actually met Jesus. Because the way you meet Jesus is with humility and understanding that he is who he said he is. He is the one and only son of God who came to rescue me from my sins. That's how our lives should be lived with that understanding. So when I run to Jesus like that, is he going to remove the struggle? No, he's not. Sorry. Well, thanks for the good news. You're welcome. No, the struggle remains to varying degrees. It remains until our last breath. Why? So we're always aware of our need of the gospel. So with Paul, we can shout, I am so weak! Woohoo! Because when I'm weak, he is majestically strong. But freedom is here for us today. Not in a strategy, not in a program, not in an ability or talent that we develop in ourselves in order to overcome our struggle. No, freedom is here for us today because we have a Savior who's foot crushed the head of Satan. We have freedom today because of a Savior who lives, a Savior who purchased our freedom. He's risen from the dead, and he will one day welcome us to glory. So today, let's live in light of that freedom. Let's pray together. Thank you. You guys have been great. (laughs) Lord, I love these people. It cracks me up to think of what they just had to endure. <laughs> God, I love them. I love the fact that they celebrate your word. And so, Lord, I pray as I pray all the time, God, if anything came out that wasn't your word and it's worthless, may it fall to the side. May we forget it quickly. But God, may your word be exalted. May you be exalted as we look at your word and hear from you. God, I ask for those people among us who are wrestling with their sexuality, whether it be trying to figure out this identity issue that we talked about a few weeks ago, whether it be within their own marriage, whether it be within the actual sexual behavior of their marriage or outside of marriage. God, would you, I'm not, I'm not even gonna pray the, the prayer of victory because not, that's not the point. the point. I pray you'd give them freedom. And I pray in their freedom they would run to Jesus that they would remember that in him they have that freedom. In him they have what, everything they need. And God, I ask that, uh, <laughs> that you'd do something great. Uh, obviously, we were focused on one topic. But God, I ask that, that in these moments, that you would quiet our hearts as we sing the gospel message of thankfulness for what you've done to us, what you've done for us, and what you will continue to do. May we rest in Christ. Amen.